Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast. I'm your host, David Rothbaff, coming to you from Manhattan, New York City. I'm joined today by Ed Luce, who, of course, is with the Financial Times and who is in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Hi, Ed. Hi, David. How are you? Very good. And from exotic southern England, we are joined by our friend Clive Priddle, who's the publisher at Public Affairs Books. How are you doing today, Clive? And can you describe your setting a little bit? Very nice to join you, David. Doing very well here in southern England, close to the city of Southampton, but in the very rural district of the New Forest. Well, that sounds just exactly like where we need you to be, because clearly what there is to talk about today is a new prime minister. How do we know this? Well, besides the fact that everybody is covering it, we've seen pictures of the Queen with Liz Truss, and they uh, were shaking hands. The Queen had a little purse. And um, I have to be honest with you, the Queen seems really tiny. She seems to be shrinking. This is her 15th prime minister. Perhaps that's inevitable. The last one would have sort of worn any of us down. I, I think the Queen has a kind of Yoda-like force. It isn't the uh, it isn't size that matters, David. It's the dignity of the expression. Well put. And um, Clive, the last time you were with us, you said, well, there's a lot of, uh, I don't think you said Sturm und Drang, but that's kind of what you meant is going to go on. And then at the end of all this, Liz Truss is going to be the prime minister. That's what happened. How did you know? <laughs> well, I think the thing about Liz Truss is she, she was a perfectly designed candidate for the 100 or so, 200 or so thousand members of the Conservative Party who ultimately made the judgment. And she won, of course, comfortably, although not quite as comfortably as she expected to. I think there was a, a late surge of buyer's remorse that kept the contest closer than it was expected to be. But she's blonde. She's sort of strident. She seems very confident. She is prepared to wear high heels and go to Russia when the civil service tells her not to. And so a lot of people have got a sort of 
Thatcher vibe going on and are hoping that that's what she is capable of. Well, Ed, you know, I've seen some opinion polls and the opinion poll, like I think it was a majority of the British people who, of course, because of your advanced form of democracy, don't actually get to vote for your prime ministers. But the majority of them said that they thought she would either be a bad uh, prime, prime minister or a really, really bad prime minister. Why is that? Well, you know, I mean, they, they certainly didn't get to choose her. You're quite right about that. This is a, it's not a timeless quirk of the British constitution. It's a fairly recent one to do with conservative party rules. But of course, in the, in the past, before, before there were votes for conservative leaders, it happened through a magic circle. And the queen would then, you know, sort of bless whatever choice the grandees chose. So it's not like it used to be very good either. But it means she comes in pledging to be something quite different to what Boris Johnson was. He was about leveling up, at least ostensibly, about leveling up and building high-speed rail to the north of England. And that partly explains why he got, he, he took so many Labour seats at the last general election, because it was, it was quite a big state Toryism that Boris Johnson, at least rhetorically, was committed to. She's a libertarian. She's trying to be sort of almost a cartoon of Thatcher down to there's some very amusing pastiches of what Liz Truss has worn and what Thatcher wore, depending on the setting. And it's almost exact replicas and copies of what Thatcher wore. So she's sort of copying her to a to a T. Boris Johnson, of course, became prime minister the same way through a Conservative Party membership vote. But he did go to the country. He did call a general election a few months later, saying that he wanted to get Brexit done and believing he needed a mandate for that. And I think that the pressure on Liz Truss inheriting the just shambles of the British economy and probably the worst in tray of any prime minister in one or two generations is going to find that there's no honeymoon and that the pressure on her to go to the country very soon will be acute. And she won't want to do that because Labour would win. They're 10 points, 10 percentage points in the lead. Five, you know, as we sort of look at the situation, Ed describes it, I think, accurately. There seems to be a looming energy crisis. There seems to be considerable amount of inflation likely to increase. The majority of the population doesn't seem to be supportive of her. Uh, and as far as I can tell, her only real economic proposals suggest, you know, cutting the taxes of rich people which doesn't really seem like that's going to fix any of this. Is she going to be a short timer? I, I, one of the reports I saw, or one of the pictures I saw, you know, showed Queen Elizabeth and said she's at her 15th prime minister and counting, Im implying that she might get to 16th soon. What do you think? You know, I think one of Liz Truss's problems, of, not of her own making, is we've had 12 years of conservative government She's the fourth prime minister. This would never happen in America. Conservatives have won for 12 years, and yet they've changed their leader four times. This makes no sense unless they've run out of ideas or tried various ideas and none of them have really worked. And um, so she is left with, she can't do austerity. Cameron tried that. It failed. Johnson tried leveling up. And I think he would argue it wasn't given a chance to succeed before people started grumbling about it and cancelling his, uh, his high-speed trains so that they're barely going to get to Birmingham, where you could already get a pretty quick train. 
Um, and why and would so, you want to go to Birmingham? No, sorry. Sorry, carry on, Glenn. There goes another Tory seat. There's very little else for Liz Trust except to kind of swing back to, you know, the, uh, the, the, the previous generation of Tory success, which, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, by, I'm skipping over John Major, who was himself a prime minister who, who had to clean up the mess after a long prime ministership before him. It is Thatcher. And so she's gone for Thatcher. I don't think you can read any significance into this. And um, I have no idea if she's going to be here for 10 minutes or 10 years. You, you would bet in favor of the former rather than the latter. She is tough. And I think Ed is exactly right. She's a libertarian. She is capable of extraordinary, let's put it politely, ideological flexibility. She started life as a liberal Democrat who was against the monarchy. She has become a conservative prime minister at the hands of a monarch who has just celebrated her diamond jubilee. So something weird is going on here. And um, it's anybody's guess as to what she's going to do in the next two years. I think, personally, Ed is right again. The problem, the problem is really the economic problem. The energy and the inflation are the same thing. Energy prices rising adds to inflation. If she can hold the energy prices down, that will help the inflationary pressures. I think the only way she can do this is to spend much more money and incur much more government debt. And I think she's going to do this by saying that the British government, compared to some other nations, and she's going to be very careful which one she chooses, is not that indebted. Well, it actually is. And you, she will be asked if, given the overall strength of the British economy, it can sustain the level of debt that she is going to impose on it. And that is a question that I think only the market gods and goddesses will decide. But I think that's, that's what's in front of us. And who knows if it goes pop very quickly. Well, you know, as we've often discussed on this podcast, because it is the nerdiest podcast in history, British debt hit 200% of GDP right after the Napoleonic Wars. And the result was the greatest period of flourishing in the history of the empire. So, you know. I'm sure we're going to hear that quoted back at us now. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to offer that up. Ed, at 3.30 today, the day that we are recording this, which is Tuesday, the president of the United States is going to talk to Liz Trust. And I've seen leaders across Europe welcome her into the role because they'll know her because she was the foreign minister. And for all of the mess that Boris Johnson made of being prime minister, it seemed like there was kind of one area where he was getting some credit from the rest of the world anyway, and that was taking a strong stand after he took a wobbly stand, then he took a stronger stand. And she was kind of the voice of this. Should, the, should, should Europe and the United States expect the foreign policy to be more or less unchanged? Yeah, I mean, even whilst Johnson was prime minister, and whilst, uh, as you rightly say, Liz Truss was foreign secretary, I mean, she was out there really sort of upping the rhetoric, not necessarily the action. There was quite a gap between the rhetoric and the action on Ukraine. She had that famous visit to where she met Lavrov, her Russian counterpart, shortly before the invasion. She has annoyed Britain's allies, the Biden administration included, by saying things like, Russia has to give Crimea back. I mean, she's she's taken a maximalist position on this war. And during the leadership, this long benighted leadership contest that Britain's been suffering over the last couple of months, she claimed repeatedly in various forms of words that she'd been leading the free world's response to Putin. So she does great 
She does great with a lot of Britain's allies. I, I don't think that's going to be any great concern, though. Britain is one of the biggest contributors, way behind America, but uh, other than Poland, ahead of everybody else. And that's going to remain the case under Liz Truss. So that will be some continuity. My concern is the economics, I mean, which is really spectacularly bad, the, the outlook. I mean, Clive quite right, rightly mentioned somewhere between 100 and 200 billion pounds subsidy for energy bills this winter, which will be essential to stop people from freezing and the old from dying and the death rate from spiking and middle class incomes from collapsing. But it's going to add further to the debt. Now, the Bank of England have been raising interest rates all year. They started before the Fed, in fact, because of Britain's particularly bad inflationary outlook. Historically, when sterling interest rates go up, um, the pound goes up because you get a higher rate of return on the pound. That's not happening. The sterling is now being treated like an emerging market currency. Interest rates keep going up. The pound keeps going down. This is a very, very bad sign about market trust in confidence in the British government's ability to manage its economic clusterfuck, to put it mildly. And so she's, as I said earlier, she's becoming prime minister at possibly the worst time I can imagine economically any prime minister has, at least since the mid-1970s. Five, I've read stories that that's precisely what Boris Johnson and his team want. You know, they, they're sort of setting her up for failure so that there will be a clamor to bring back Boris. How much credence do you give those stories? Well, I, I totally believe what Boris Johnson said today, which was sort of slavish declaration of loyalty to trust. I, I think that's right. You're not going to hear a squeak out of Boris Johnson. He's going to be an adorable backbencher, a funny panelist on quiz shows, a lively newspaper commentator, a fantastic after-dinner speaker, and he's going to just shine his shiny cheeks ready for that opportunity if it comes around again. And I think he clearly believes that it, it will and it should. And his classical references to returning Roman presidents and so forth, or emperors, uh, dictators, make it clear that the hint has been dropped. I don't know what Ed thinks of this. I'm sure he talks to lots and lots of people. But I think you can already feel amongst some of the Tory voters that there's buyer's remorse kicking in quite badly here. They are sort of asking themselves, wait a minute, he held a couple of drinks, parties in a time of COVID, and you know, weren't we all a bit stressed? And, and he did get this extraordinary large, by modern standards, conservative majority. Why are we kicking him out again? I think there's a lot of that going round right now. So all Johnson has to do is smile and be nice and perhaps try not to impregnate any more women who aren't his wife. And then I think he's got a real chance. Ed, buyer's remorse, you know, like two hours after she's become prime minister. Well, I guess it's two months after the defenestration of Boris. And it's been, it really has been a sort of woeful two months in terms of this leadership debate. As Clive uh, the client mentions mentioned that you know Liz Truss is not popular amongst conservative members of parliament. They never voted for her. They voted for Rishi Sunak, the guy she beat. It's the Conservative Party membership, 0.3% of the British electorate, that gave her her victory over, over Rishi Sunak. Um, you know, Boris's statement today, Cincinnatus returned to his plough and then he came back. So I'm guessing that was a fairly deliberate reference. It was kind of an odd farewell address, because in terms of mixed metaphors alone, he, he described himself as a rocket booster, and he's now re, 
for Britain and he's re-entering re the atmosphere and will land somewhere quietly in the Pacific before returning to his plow, <laughs> which, you know, I'm still trying to get my head around that one. Um, but I, I've, I've no doubt he's a lot more popular with Tory backbenchers and tons of them are from the North and they know that they won because Boris had this levelling up stuff and he appeals for some reason somehow across demographics in a way that Liz Truss never will. So, yeah, Clive might be right. You know, the Berlusconi playbook is in, is in um, it's a different Roman, but it, the Berlusconi playbook is in, is in Boris's head. So what can alter this bleak picture, Clive? A warm winter, Europe getting its arms around the energy crisis, which they seem to be making some progress on, or her pulling a sort of, a rabbit out of the hat economically, some program that resonates with people or taking on a personality she hasn't taken on before. The, the Washington Post today had a story that hers would be the first cabinet where none of the top four positions were occupied by white males. Is that a sign of something bubbling up that's new or no, it's, it, it isn't. I mean, basically, the, most of the other possible cabinet members have resigned and they're, they're not in contention. So her pool from which she can select is small. She apparently likes very loyal people. So that, that narrows the pool further. And, um, you know, she, she undoubtedly will have sort of clannish group around her to support her. Good luck to them. I don't have any insight into the putative new home secretary but her performances in the leadership contest were dreadful i thought i think quasi Quateng is a very interesting man and i will declare an interest here i'm actually his publisher in america so i'm delighted that we publish the probably the next chancellor of the exchequer but no it's it, it's not a deep bench that she has to choose from as to what is she going to do well i think she is the opposite of risk averse I think she's a chancer, so it is possible that she will take a big swing at something. And then the question will be, is it a success or is it a horrible failure? I'm fascinated by how she plans to deal with Northern Ireland, where I think that's one of those issues that Ed was referring to when he said that she, she has been extremely grating to Britain's traditional allies. Um, Northern Ireland is, is a huge Johnson you know, turd that he's left on the pavement in front of her. And... She has to clean it up and she has to do it in such a way that she doesn't do any more damage, but she might not. And that isn't going to go away. And it's not going to matter to anybody else except the British, the Irish and Joe Biden. I'm really fascinated to see what she does there. Yeah, it's an issue that resonates with Joe Biden, as we know. Ed, what, the same question to you. If there is a rabbit to be pulled out of the hat, what is it? It's funny when you when you asked Clive that question and you mentioned uh, some of the racial diversity in, in British Conservative Party cabinets of all places nowadays. I thought back to a tweet that I saw from a former colleague this morning. First names of the last four finance ministers of France: Bruno, Michel, Pierre, and Francois. Germany: Christian, Olaf, Peter, and Wolfgang. Italy: Daniel, Roberto, Giovanni, and Pierre Carlo. Britain, Quasi, Nadim, Rishi, Sajid. I think that is more than just, uh, just a flash in the pan. I mean, I did, some of these are senior cabinet people. And of course, Boris was 
ejected because of the resignation of Sajid and Rishi, two senior cabinet ministers. And that's why Rishi didn't win the leadership contest. He was the Brutus who ended Boris's prime ministership. But if there is a silver lining in this very bleak British political setup, it is that it's not racialized. And that might be a surprising thing to say after the anti-immigration sort of impetus behind Brexit, but immigration hasn't declined to Britain. It's become more non-white because the European immigration has been shut off. Fewer Poles, more Sri Lankans. And it's not caused any great increase in racial tensions. So if there's any sort of accentuating of the positive to do, and I'm really straining here because I don't like Rishi, Sajid, Kwasi, I just don't like these, these figures as, as in terms of their political philosophy, then it would be that. And their political philosophies being this kind of classic Tory. Um, and very Brexit, you know, all of them. I mean, ironically, Liz Truss campaigned against Brexit, but that's because she was a loyal, ambitious, ambitious supporter of David Cameron. And she thought that the referendum would win, that Britain would stay in Europe. She then switched. But uh, the rest are all sort of hardcore Brexiteers. Yeah, you know, Clive, as I, as I was thinking of all of this, I was thinking this wrong turn that the UK made at Brexit just keeps producing, you know, worse and worse outcomes. And, you know, the, it seems like the economy and the status of the country circles the, the drain ever more quickly. And it all can be traced back to Brexit. Am I overstating that? Is that, it just seems to me to be so egregiously ill-considered. I think it's Brexit and it's Johnson. So Johnson is a special case as a prime minister. He's, he, he, you know, he, he has a remarkable capacity to, to be a profound and an idiot in the same sentence, the same momentum. So, so I think he added an extra kind of dimension of volatility to British politics. But yeah, Brexit, Brexit goes on and on, and it's getting harder and harder to justify it, except as an ideological choice. And of course, for a lot of people, it was an ideological choice, and that's why they made it. But you keep hearing here stories of companies who previously were sympathetic to Brexit, perhaps as a notion, but were also doing a lot of business with Europe, and now they're doing a tenth or even a hundredth of the business that they were once doing with the EU, and they haven't been able to replace that export business. And I think. Uh, at some point, you know, all the posturing over Brexit that has come from the Conservatives, because they're the only party that really wanted to own it, um, is going to be held to account, by which I mean, voters are going to say, well, you, you said this was going to be so good. You argued for it for so long. You had such a long run up until it was actually complete. Why on earth didn't you do it better? And the, the lack of professionalism, the lack of preparation, the inability to anticipate the, the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic consequences of Brexit, that we're going to make exports so hard. I think it's really amateurish. And, and one doesn't think of Conservative Party being amateurish for business, but Brexit shows the Conservatives to have been terrible for business. And I do wonder whether that in the end is what is going to be like a sort of dagger through this period when, when the voters make their ultimate judgment. I want to come back and I want to talk what this means for Europe and the Atlantic Alliance. This is where we normally take a break in the podcast and uh, say goodbye to the folks who are listening in the general public and encourage them to go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and become a member so that they can 
listen in for the, the last third of this and every other podcast we do, a list of podcasts, which is expanding. I do also want to say, by the way, that we, as a general rule, don't do mantles around here. We always try to have some gender balance. And typically on Mondays, that begins with Rosa Brooks, who has been here since the very beginning. And uh, as some of you may have read, Rosa's mom, the noted author and activist Barbara Ehrenreich, died after some illness a few days ago. And Rosa is dealing with that. And I just want to say that our thoughts are with her and with her family. And if you haven't read the work of Barbara Ehrenreich, you should. She's really an extraordinary figure. And of course, we we hope this period goes as well as possible for Rosa and her family. In any event, we'll take our brief break and we'll be back in one moment. 